I've never done vocal exercises before, so I don't know what oh, they sound like. Yeah. Mm. I don't think that's how vocal exercises are supposed to go. We just had a hailstorm here. Oh, end times. Hail, hail. How, bi- how big Pretty is the hail? Cool. I'd say like, uh, you know, dime-sized. Nah, that's, but, you know, significant. That's real hail. Oh. Kids must have been you know? stoked. Yeah, I think that's fun. I used to think as long hail as you're was just inside, the coolest shit. You know, it always makes me think. Like I've been thinking a lot about this when I'm out here. It's is like, oh, hailstorm. But you know, I hear it like bouncing off my house or my car, and I kind of start to think of like what the ancient peoples did <laughs> in times like that, and if if they had like, you know. The correct, but then I'm like, you know, people lived for so many thousands of years prior to all this bullshit. I'm sure they had it sorted out, you know, like it's not like they never saw hail and never dealt with it and probably had it sorted out. And then it always makes me think, I'm like, all right, like, you know, we see like these wigwams in the museum. I'm like, you know, there was like one family who just had like the pimp wigwam that like all the kids wanted to hang at. And then there was like the one other like crew that were like, yo, we're like the wigwam builders. We got like the really good materials and all, we know what to do. And then you start to realize there's probably, there's always been these like shitty pecking orders in society. <laughs> yeah. Once you get over a certain amount of people every time, right? You Absolutely. Know? Like, like someone had to shit wigwam and probably got made fun of for it. Like, like at, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I always wondered whether I would be like a musician or like making canoes or a hunter. I could make a good canoe. I don't think I'd be a good hunter. Not because no. Or maybe I would actually. I'm pretty like. I've had some very successful um, Bugs Bunny. Hunts <laughs> you. There you go. I, I remember trapping like a bird under a box with a stick. Oh, you up. did like the like Charlie Brown shit where yeah. you like lured it in and snuck yeah, it under. I put like food in a box oh, on the floor okay. on the ground and like, and I actually killed. Well, I trapped a groundhog using an anvil. <laughs> what? Tell me how. We had this big garden and there's a groundhog coming in under the fence in this one spot. And I put like a sawhorse over it with a hundred pound anvil (laughs) with like a stick just barely holding it so that it wouldn't fall over right in front of the hole. So that when the groundhog came through, the anvil would fall on it and kill it. And it worked? It fucking worked. Oh, my God. the anvil fell and didn't hit the groundhog, but it trapped it in the garden. Oh. And so then he... there was a manual execution. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Brad. <laughs> so maybe I would be a good hunter. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize you had so much blood on your hands. Yeah. I've I think you it. just gained respect from uh, from, <laughs> from Neil? Patreon Neil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Neil's at home like, yeah, brother. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That story didn't come out in the fucking yeah, Thursday you night always, chat. You always hold back too much in those in those stories. <laughs> so how how'd you cut up this episode with Jim? What, what, what do we what do we got in episode one here? I haven't really got to it yet. I think I'm just gonna let it run through. There was a good midpoint kind of 
after uh, we kind of get into the Goop's rancid stuff that I think was a good place to end. And um, cool. And then so, we'll just have one, one and two. Yeah. Full disclosure. You know, you wind up with a a glorious big fish yarn spinner like Jim Norton. Oh yeah. I didn't want to stop talking to him. Dude, this is I'm the like, longest I, interview we've ever done. I heard all these stories and we're about like an hour 45 into it. And I'm like, <laughs> shit, I didn't get this story. I didn't get this story. I didn't do my New Jersey State trivia quiz yet. I'm like, and I text Brad. I'm like, yo, we got to think this is a two-parter, man. Let's yeah. just keep rolling, rolling yeah. tape. It definitely so is. We got literally... Th- what three hours? Yes, of, over three hours <laughs> of mostly just amazing stories, told with with real like skillful precision. That's yes. one thing about these stories, and can imagine you would really relate to this since you're like pretty bad storyteller. Um, <laughs> but the attention to details when he's just like, yeah, you know, this was. February 86. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I I might be able to round you to the year yeah. in my stories, but yeah. the month? No, that Unless was- I was in like a snowstorm or something where it made it real obvious. <laughs> I, I cannot do that. So it's like, I think one of those cool savant things of a great storyteller, you know, where it's... Uh... So, so tell me, well, we didn't even get into... When... Your first time meeting Jim, was, what was your first impression? So we bonded immediately because it was... So this is a Goops tour? It was the... Ran- Goops opening we for Rancid? We with Rancid, yeah, okay. the Goops. And Jim was East Coast. We were East Coast. And like, I mean, you know, the Rancid guys, <laughs> I love them, but like, they can be really serious and... You know, Jim was right away kind of like, listen, you know, like a lot of the East Coast humor doesn't really go down with kind of some of the like, mm-hmm. the like Northern Cali punkers sort of, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. he's uh-huh. like, they just don't kind of have the self-depreciation sort of ball busting. Yeah, yeah. Which like, was interesting that he was kind of schooling us because we were, you know, we weren't kids and we definitely knew enough people, but it was true like... That I guess we hadn't really had enough contact with this particular sort of click. Like right. I don't know how else to describe it. And like, and he was kind of, he was right. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, for every Sam I am who are just a fucking van full of jokers, right, there right. is this other kind of like, you know, we're serious about our punk rock and <laughs> our mohawks. <laughs> yeah, it's always that strange thing, right? With with certain people, not everybody, because there's definitely some people with the vibe, but certain people on the West Coast who hear, you know, two East Coasters talking and they're like, do you, do you guys hate each other? Yeah. <laughs> like, why, you know, uh, yeah. and then that's the funny thing, you know, you, one of the people we brought up, Josh from, uh, Josh Jerk from School Drugs, you know, who works closely with Jim at House of Independence. I mean, if someone from an outside world, like, spent an hour in the place, you'd be like, wait, these guys hate each other? <laughs> because they fucking just are all day long, just you know, dissing. like razzing and razzing and razzing yeah. all day long. And then you realize, oh, they're like really good friends, yeah. you know, and there's, and, you know, you have to sometimes explain, I had to explain to a new tour manager we had recently about that. I'm like, listen, if we're quiet, 
for not saying anything to you. There's something wrong, you know? And if we keep making fun of you, we're we're happy. We're we're liking it. We're expecting it back. Like, that's the vibe. Yeah. So So he gave you that warning. Yeah. We, and we, I mean, we bonded instantly and it was, and just were really impressed at how, I mean, on the fucking money he was as like a road manager. Like he was just always in the right place at the right time. Like he could cover every single base. And yeah, as soon as we'd had a headline tour and had, you know, the money, we took him out. I guess that's one of those things in an interview like this is like, you know, you're like, oh, how'd you go from this band to this band to this band at such young ages? It's like, oh, yeah, you're probably just really good at what you did. Yeah. And a lot of people wanted wanted you to work for him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he really had his hands full on that tour. Like a lot of <laughs> what we didn't get into, which we are, <laughs> we, we talk about doing a third part to this because right, there's right. one big story. I'm not going to even, well, I guess we'll, in the in part two of this, he'll hint about it, but there's a big yeah. story that is, it spans a lot of, a lot of things. And, um, yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we'll get into we'll get into some of the stuff that he put up with with Rancid, yeah, so, which was not on lo- Rancid, you know, like right, not, right. We're not trying to diss Rancid. It's it was there was a just a circus going on around them at the time yeah. that he was on the road with them, and when we were there, we we witnessed some of it. So I definitely want to hear the full story. Yeah. So we'll we're gonna get Jim back at some point for a third episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Meanwhile, let's get into this one because it's worth it. No time wasted. Come on. I'm I'm officially starting this recording now. Okay. Oh, there it goes. You know, I got to play in a room in a studio that was built to try to copy that Bonham sound. There is like a... What studio? At Blackbird in Nashville, they built a room probably the size of like, you know, an industrial like elevator shaft, right. essentially, mm-hmm. with a ceiling that raises and lowers up to 12 feet. And you can like, you know, mic it all the way at the top at 12 feet. You can do it all the way down and compress it. Uh, pretty funky, though. I don't know if we used it, but I was hellbent on like, I'm like, I at least got to try. Put me in this room, you know? 
I thought there was a stairwell. Wasn't uh, it? I, I, oh, okay. I mean, maybe it was. I had always read that it was a uh, like the foyer of some like English manor, and it was all marble, and they put like two like U eighty sevens up at the top right. or something like that. That's what it sounds like. I think I prefer foyer of an English manor. Just <laughs> uh, yeah, that's because you're Jersey trash. Oh, that's how we're starting. Yeah, oh, baby. Right in. Right Listen, in. Oh. Hey, Benny. <laughs> <laughs> Benny, we've already, we've already been catching up now for like five minutes, my friend. Uh-oh. So, I should yeah. be on high alert, huh? <laughs> <laughs> how you doing yes. there, Jim? I'm doing very well. And, and just to be clear, I am born and bred New Jersey myself. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I I'd just, like you to know, my mom, every time I would call ourselves white trash, she'd go, no, 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 no. We're shabby genteel, Ooh. <laughs> which was some terminology, I believe, French for like educated people who wound up poor. So that was her distinction of why we lived, you know, in a white trash building with white trash people. <laughs> but right. she somehow you were on separated your... us by being shabby genteel. You were on your way down. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but uh, luckily, rock and roll saved, saved the family name, you know? I, uh, you know, what's funny is I'm, uh, I wouldn't refer to myself as shabby genteel, but, uh, there was a, uh, a little bit of a come down in my family as well, which I'm not going to lead off with or necessarily air publicly, but I, but if, if your mother was, you know, sort of sticking up for her ancestors, uh, I definitely come from a similar situation Yeah, of like, Hey, uh, you know. Wasn't your dad like far more, you know, <laughs> well thought of than you are? You know. <laughs> right. But so I actually, I would, you know, I've heard you're obviously the great yarn spinner and storyteller. And I'm so stoked to have you on because you have a brain full of experience that I love to pick through any chance I get. But I also do wonder, wh- and I've never gotten into it, like, where do you come from, man? Like, like, how does, you know, I know you started so young and what you were doing with music and stuff. And like, what was the background that basically, and how did you get there? Like business, your parents in and stuff like that. Who is gentleman Jim? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, (laughs) well, first of all, I come from a large Irish Catholic family. I have, eight older sisters and I had one younger sister. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, my parents were, and, and this actually all sort of works towards it. Uh, my parents were the last of the pre rock and roll generation. They were married in, I think 57. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Married in 57, first baby in 58, second one in 59, Twins in 60, just like Irish Catholic. Bang, bang, bang. The Pope said to make more, so we're making more. Okay, right. Um, So, and they grew up in Jersey City. My my parents both grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, right across the river from New York. Um, Were they in that neighborhood where now is the Holland Tunnel? Because I know that was all Irish at one point. No, no, no. Uh, There's... uh, it will shock you to find out there's a story about where my dad grew up. No, he grew up uh, off of what is now Kennedy Boulevard. Oh, so up in the Heights. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, um, my anyway, my parents, uh, my parents both grew up in you know 
right outside of New York City in an age before uh, every, you know, uh, every every child going missing was a uh, a huge community event or a huge national event. Right. So they grew up with the sort of idea, the freedom of going back and forth between Jersey City and and New York. Uh, and so even though we live down in the suburbs of Monmouth County, uh, near Long Branch, Sandy Hook area, for those who know, Red Bank, Asbury Park, um, they kind of had this attitude of like, well, of course you can go wherever you want and do what you, whatever you want to do. Sure. Um, Cause we've got so many of you, we won't miss right. one. We got spares. <laughs> we got <Right>. spares. <laughs> um, so they, I was allowed from a young age to do stuff. And part of this was their age. And part of this was the fact that I was the ninth out of 10 and they were kind of burnt out by the time I came around. Part of it was the fact that I was the only boy and they were, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, sexist and less protective. Um, and part of it, frankly, was family dysfunction, (laughs) you know? Right. Uh, whatever there were there were other things that occupied their time and occupied their brain uh than where exactly all of their children were at any given time <laughs> right um when did they make the exodus from like Hudson County down that way uh early 60s i think oh okay. so early to mid 60s um early before, settlers er, uh yeah yeah <laughs> and uh they so from a young age, I was like, even in my very small, protected, safe little suburban town, I was the one who didn't have a curfew at all. Right. So I was literally like the last one, you know, I walking around town at, you know, midnight at, as a, you know, 11 year old or something like that, just sort of wandering around, um, which now that I say it out loud, I've really sounds really sounds pretty bad but it was a very very safe insular little town was, um Ma- monmouth beach new jersey it's a different time right uh, not really no. not really <laughs> no. i have a i have a that's one of my soap boxes it's like things actually aren't more or less dangerous it's just that there's a lot more money to be made in uh mm. press yeah by right. by sure. by covering it i that's i sort point. of I fa- I place it all at the feet. I'm actually kind of serious without being conspiratorial. It's all Ted Turner's fault. If it <laughs> weren't for CNN, we wouldn't have this crazy, like, you know, there's a child missing 50 miles away. We all have to know about it. Right, it's like, right, right. You know, come on. We know that 90 plus percent of the time it's, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's a it's a parent or a family member involved in a custody dispute. We right. know this. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's sad and you don't want this to happen to people, but it's not really the you know, it's it's not people in helicopters swooping in and right. as dads, I think you understand. I think you probably experience a bit of that anxiety and sure. get it secondhand from other people. Yeah, anyway. it's like uh Anchorman too, you know, when Ron Burgundy invents the uh car chase. Yes, you know? yes. Just got to keep the eyes on the tube, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I think there's some some truth there. Bad parenting uh, or, or, or lax 1970s parenting right. well into the 1980s. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, older sisters who got into uh, a little bit of music. Uh, and then I started my, or I was, yeah, joined a high school punk rock band. Um, and it was just sort of one step after another and kind of being, uh, a little bit outgoing and meeting people and networking with people like you, Benny. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, the next thing you know, you're working at a thousand capacity, nightclub at 17 years old in the middle of Trenton, New Jersey. Well, here's where, here's your, you know, I think you, your story's so large in scope, we do miss the details. And it's like, yes. <laughs> so you don't just like go from like, oh, I'm a 13 year old in my first band to like working at city gardens. Like how, like when did you actually start playing? Like what, when did you get your first, It was you know, like uh, your first bass and like, when did you actually get into like actually was, playing music? Right. I, it was probably, I was probably 15. I okay. was, it was with, um, uh, you know, it's the typical kind of like couple of guys you went to high school with and they were playing and, you know, introducing this one to that one and they got together. So I was there with them, uh, in the garage as they're playing. And I know that one of the songs that they played was Anarchy in the UK. Okay. And, uh, no one really wanted to sing it. So of course I was like, well, I'll sing it. <laughs> right. you know, it was just, it was, it was the exact same story as 10,000 other people. Right. And it, you know, I get up there and I like just sang the thing like, it, like my life depended on it. And I'm sure. sure I was terrible, but I sang it like my life depended on it. But you're willing to try and gave it yeah. your all. Yeah. That's bad. And, uh, <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay. Sure. Um, and that sort of, you know, stumbled through a couple of members and, uh, and and that was it. And then uh, one day, so you referenced me playing bass. Well, so you, I, I did not have any, I did not play guitar. I did not play bass. I'm, I'm not, I do not come from a real musical uh, family or background other than my, my own love for the punk rock music. Um, and so I asked I was, that because you did play bass in Crucial Youth, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so one day, I, the first band I was in, they were called the Shock Mommies, and they're sort of this Ooh. footnote of a footnote of a of a forgotten band from New Brunswick, New Jersey. Good and name, it, though. Yes. And we were like a goofy, fun band, and I would like go on stage wearing dresses. And strangely enough, the dresses <laughs> would get like ripped off halfway through, and it's like you know a a chubby 17 year old in like, you know, Chuck Taylors and right. tidy whiteies, you know, it was, it was a real family. It was a real family show. Yeah. No, I heard that story about that. And I thought it was, you know, pretty, pretty cool to hear at that time that you were comfortable, you know, kind of gender bending a little and, and like, that's where I wonder, I mean, you have eight sisters. Like, how does that like, shape a person differently like like do you think your sensibility looking at the world has like forever been different because of that that like sort of overarching influence like i mean that and being you know that and catholicism yeah i right, mean right like it's it's uh yeah like there was definitely a lot of uh there was definitely a lot of repression that had to come out somehow, somewhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so it sort of comes out as like a joke. Um, and were now, you like, did you have to go to church, you know, Sundays? Like, was that still pretty, pretty hardcore yeah. in your family? Yeah, but it was like, it was the, um, it was the kind of lazy, 
you know, it, it, it was the, again, like 10,000 other people. It's the idea of you're being told that you have to go to church, um, but no one's going to go with you. <laughs> Right. And you know, you just you have to go. Yeah, right. That's right, it. Right. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to pay attention. You don't have to, you know, there's no follow-up to it. It was just like, oh, if he goes, this will sink in and he'll be Catholic like me. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, you know. At the bare minimum, uh, just get you there. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and uh, but my f- it it all sort of came crashing down when I was 17 years old on Christmas morning. Uh and you know, so so the one of the churches near us had a midnight mass uh, Christmas Eve, and my sisters would go to that. It was sort of a social event. Um, and the next morning, I didn't. You know, if you didn't go, then you had to go to church on Christmas morning. Oh, okay, I see. And so when I was seventeen, my parents are getting ready to go to Christmas morning mass, and they're oh, who didn't? You know, who still needs to go to church? Right. <laughs> and. <laughs> You know, my sisters would like rat me out or rat, rat. We, it was very common to be like, I don't have to go. Like, me and, you know, this one, this one, this one, and this one, we all went to, right. you know, the other thing. And you just sort of by process of elimination, you're sitting there and the music has stopped and you're not sitting in a chair. <laughs> right. um, and you're like, yeah, okay, I got to go to Mass. Um, so it was the 10 a.m. Christmas Mass. I guess that would be 1987. Mm hmm. And the church in our in our town, the Church of the Precious Blood. Yeah. Um the Church of the Precious Blood, the the priest there was like the guy who was not going along with the liberal reforms of the Catholic Church right, from right. the late sixties, Vatican II. And uh <laughs> dug his polished heels in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh so I end up going to Mass with my my parents, you know, my father and mother, Irish Catholic to the core, like uh had ten kids, like whatever. They just, they, they did it all. They they put right. up with all of it. Yeah. And uh we get in there and I'm sitting I I I'm trying to remember what it is. I I go into the pew first and then it's like my dad and then my mother. So my mom's on the end on the aisle seat. And uh the priest launches into in the beginning of the sermon, you know, today is Christmas. What would have happened if Mary and Joseph had an abortion. <laughs> right. And my father lets out in front of the whole church an audible, Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph, which was like, you know, that was like, right. whoa, whoa. That's like a curse. Yeah. Yes. When yeah. dad says that, it's like, whoa, he's pissed. Yeah, yeah. There's Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph. And everyone hears him. And my mother, my mother, Irish Catholic mother of 10, turns right to him and just says, I don't need to hear this, stands up and walks out in the front of the whole church. My dad is like, my dad's like, well, if she's leaving, I'm I'm, out of here. I'm not not sticking around. Holy shit. And then I'm there, I'm like the third one, I'm just like, you know, stand up. And I'm like, you know, 17, like, oh, well, they're my ride. (laughs) Sorry, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah 
and, right. and it, from there it was like you know never really went back uh i got married in uh 1999 and we got married by this um we got married by this monsignor from the upper east side i think it is or uh Guy named, and you can look him up, Monsignor John Woolsey. Okay. And my mom had met him. My mom was a real estate agent. She had sold him a condo. Some old lady had like given him money to like have a little thing on his own, like have a little place of his own. And uh, it, the story was that like this woman was, you know, had nobody, had no family, had some money that she had come into. And in her will, she was going to leave him this money. And uh, then she gave him the money before she gave him a big chunk of the money before she died. And then she died and he got more money and he had married us a year or two before. And all of a sudden, uh, like CBS news is turning up at like my mom's real estate office oh. because it turns out that she had an estranged niece who wondered where the money went and, oh. Stuff got fishy, and he ended up doing like four years in jail. Oh man! Uh, so yeah, that, that was and that was your uh, that was like the next <laughs> the next experience with the Catholic Church. Yeah, Jeez. okay. Was like yeah, he's there's if you search his name, there's literally a New York Post cover with his face on it, and in big letters it says "Let us" and the S in. Uh, the S in us is a dollar sign. Let us pray. <laughs> P-R-E-Y. Wow. It's oh, so good. <laughs> All right. Um, so you got a couple couple got, lessons there. Yeah. 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 Well, good for you. I mean, that's kind of punk rock of your parents. I can see where maybe some of your, oh, your yeah. spirit came from, you know? like Yes. Push people, it back a little bit. Yeah. A lot wow. of people would have sat there and clearly they had some independent thought, which is great. Yeah. So, you know, I never got to go to City Gardens. And it's because I had tickets to see a show in 1994 or 95 or like right towards the end, you know? And 94, yeah. Yeah, and um, I went with a friend's band without telling my mom to Pennsylvania to a hardcore show. Okay. She caught me, said I couldn't go to the City Gardens one, and then it closed like shortly thereafter. So... I remember Ooh, my, so my brother had been... tales of going to see like live in the Boston's. He was kind of like yep. punk adjacent guy, but I never got to like feel the place myself. And I think for a lot of people just my age and younger, it's sort of this, you know, huge historical thing in New Jersey. But I've heard you say it was like, it's been almost like dramatized like over the years and it wasn't as you know, sexy I mean, as people think like, like, you know, well, well, no, first of all, let's be very clear. The last word that one would use to describe city gardens in Trenton, New Jersey is <laughs> sexy. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there is. Well, I mean, sexy I, in the punk rock way, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, it was an inter, it was a, a, an interesting place of its time. Um, but it was essentially like, so many others, just a large concrete box. Right. Um, and it was, you know, uh, it was a place that, you know, the, the promoter at the time, uh, recognized what was coming up a little bit before other people did or were willing to give it a chance. Mm -hmm. And so had some success, with stuff there. Um, you mean by like just booking 
certain types of kind of yeah, different what, touring bands, alternative and punk. Alternative, yeah. Like whether it was, yeah. And, and you know, you always, you, you gravitate to the big names now and you go, well, you know, the Nirvana played there and Green right. Day played there and this one and that one. Um, but like, you know, even before then, he was, you know, uh, he was booking punk and new wave stuff in the very early 80s. He was um, Randy? Like I Randy? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was like that was a spot that you could go uh, because it was a weird time in Philadelphia. I feel like there were, mm. um, I feel like there wasn't, there were kind of like strange little periods where stuff couldn't really get booked in Philadelphia or, you know, um, and there's still enough of a population base around Trenton area, uh, sort of New Jersey, just outside the reach of New York. Yeah. Um, Pennsylvania, just, you know, a little bit North of Philly where it's like, you know, there's enough of a population base to make that work. And Um, off the train as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, and that was, that was interesting. I, um, in March of 1986, I, uh, wrote a letter to Tim Yohannan of Maximum Rock and Roll when I was just turned 17. And it was this like, uh, very, uh, very stereotypical like young punk rocker fist shaking letter, you know, bands, please don't play city gardens in Trenton. You know, like they're only in it for the money. I, you know, like who, you know, whoever pick, you know, make up some, you know, you know, DOA and TSOL and, uh, you know, this one and this one played their four bands and they, pl- they charged $8 to get in, <laughs> right. you know, and you're just like, dude, I had no, like, I had no idea what anything cost. No yeah, idea. Sure. Like yeah. what expenses were. Right, right. You know, it was just this idea of like, you know, it, you should never charge more than a dollar for a band. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, that's cute. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so that was in March. And then in July, I was at a show there and of course I was 17. So it's like, as soon as I wrote the letter and, you know, nothing happened with it and didn't get published, it was like, well that, okay, never mind. I'll get on to my next, you know, next, right. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, descendants yeah. are playing. At okay. Age, it's $8. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Um, <laughs> And I saw it was two weeks in a row, I think it was, or, or two shows, you know, very close proximity. It was GBH. Whoa. Uh, GBH with seven seconds and somebody else. Wow. And a Descendants Agent Orange show. Cool. Both in the summer of 1986. And, uh, I, but, from playing in that band, the Shock Mommies, I had been I made friends with a guy who was the stage bouncer at City Gardens, a guy named Kyle Eves from the band Bodies in Panic. He was uh, this long; he had sort of shoulder length red hair, and uh, he was the one who'd sort of gently escort kids off the stage if they went up to stage dive, and they called him Punk Rock Jesus. Um, <laughs> nice, <laughs> uh, but he was sort of overwhelmed, and I asked him, like, you know, do you want help? 
And he was like, yeah, sure. So I went up and sort of pro bono was like kicking kids off the stage. And after the second time I did it. You're a pretty big dude by this point. I mean, I'm not big. I'm like just under six foot. I'm chubby. You know, I I could have been a football player. I could have been a high school football player if I wanted to. Could have seen you on the line. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not. I'm not actually big. I'm not like bouncer big. You got. You know what you have. You have those like forearms where I'm like, eh, I'd think twice. Yeah, yes. I mean, but it's also yeah. I mean, it's a will. It's it's a commitment to action. Like if something happens, if something happens, is that going to be the person who's going to jump in? And it's like, right. yeah. in my younger years, yes, I right. was the one. Not not in like a tough guy way, sure, but just in like a. You know, kind of like like ants going after a spider or something yeah, like that. Yeah, just didn't like, shake I'll be you one that of much. Them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you started helping out punk rock Jesus. Started, I helped out punk rock Jesus, and then at the end of the show, I uh, I was like, "Hey, you know, you think you could get me a job here?" And he's like, "Yeah, oh, maybe." You know, and he grabs Randy, the promoter. He's like, "Randy, this is my friend Jim. You know, whatever." He helped out for the next two, the last two weeks, and Randy just really like exasperated. It's like, and now you want me to pay you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, not for this, like not for you <laughs> yeah, know, right. like not for th- not not retroactively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, no, I was like, you know, but I'd like to work in the future. And he was like, oh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, and so I got started as security, like working the door, you know, or I, when I say working the door, I should be clear, manning a side door oh, okay. uh, that people would get like get thrown out of basically gotcha. or stopping people from opening the door to let uh, friends in the side door. Um, and then it moved to the stage and then I started showing up early to help bands load gear in and out. And then oh, that's I, a mistake. Well, got me on this podcast eventually. Um, I got to tour with the Goops because of this. Um, Yeah, started helping bands load in and out because you know, well, I got to do something and you know, gain their gain their acceptance and appreciation. Um, So I did that, and then it was I was sort of. given the title of stage manager because I was basically doing it anyway. Right. Uh, and then from there I took that to, uh, going, I went out on tour, uh, as a roadie with, uh, seven seconds in 1989. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And just as like, like helper, like not, not like administrative yet or anything like that. The first tour was the first tour was roadie backline and carrying stuff in and out. And Kevin, the singer was doing the tour management. Okay. But he hated it. And so the second tour, I was like, well, make me the tour manager. And so then from the second tour I did, I was doing tour management from there. And did, was and, that just kind of like trial by fire? Or did you have any yes. knowledge from doing your own tours or anything? No, 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 not really. I mean, okay. yeah, Crucial Youth had done Crucial Youth in uh oh, I didn't really I mean, I don't know if it matters or not, but I was playing in this band, the Shock Mommies, and we ran into some other people who looked like they were punk no, no, they didn't look punk rockers. They came up to us and said, We're like, yo, you guys are punk rockers. Cause I <laughs> I think one of us was wearing like, you know a dead Kennedy shirt or something like that. And it turns out, it turned out to have been these, um, 
uh, one of the guys who was in a band that later birthed Crucial Youth. Uh, and so we made friends with them. And at some point, the bass play, they had this band, this sort of nascent band, Crucial Youth, and the bass player went to Finland for a year uh, as part of a student exchange. And I was asked if I would play bass for Crucial Youth, ah, uh, which okay. was mostly like backyards and parties at that point. And, uh, and I said, yes. However, two problems. Number one, I don't play bass. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, I don't own a bass. Right. Okay. <laughs> and the guy from the band was like, well, we have a bass. And as far as they're not playing bass, come on, it's bass. You know. <laughs> apologies, all bass players. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe not so much apologies like, you know, 17-year-old hardcore bass players. No, like, no. Yeah. Shout out to them. But but <laughs> like we know, we know, you know, come on, come on. <laughs> Just like, slap the thing, baby. Come on. Oh, I did slap the thing, unfortunately. Oh, you did? Not. Oh, uh, that, I went through that regrettable phase, sure. Sure. I, I think every, yeah, it's, you know, I had I had too much China symbol once. We all go through it. You oh, know? you mean any China symbol? <laughs> I mean, now, yeah. Yeah, it's banned for my kit now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that was like, so Crucial Youth, you know, who, for people who don't know, was a like a straight edge parody group. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Who, it, who now, very we're going to say it out loud. Yes. We, the secret is out. Yeah. <laughs> very um, successfully teased a lot of things that at the time, you know, needed a little ne- razzing. Oh, needed, yes. needed majorly teased. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, and some of the people uh, being teased thought it was hysterically funny. And some of them really did not. Yeah. What did Ian Mackay think about it? Uh, I think he liked it, but we were, I mean, we were after he was, uh, we were after. I guess it was Fugazi. Minor threat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was kind of like, you know, now here's my Ian Mackay story. Please. Yeah. This is a good one. Um. <laughs> And and by the way, when I say my Ian Mackay story, every story I tell is not a so-and-so story. It's a me story, just <laughs> right. to be clear. All right. <laughs> yeah, perpetrated by this person. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> so Crucial Youth, uh, our guitar player moved out to the West Coast to design airplane engines for a time. And uh, while he was out there, he became familiar with the – lived in Long Beach, which is where the straight edge band Uniform Choice oh, yeah. was from. Okay. So Uniform Choice, Brad, because I know you know nothing of straight edge hardcore. <laughs> Uniform Choice were kind of uh, California's biggest straight edge band at the time. They were, I will say, uh, if you go back and listen to Uniform Choice, they had an amazing knack for releasing music that sounded very much inspired by bigger bands a year and a half earlier. (laughs) Very Uh, diplomatic. Yeah. That's not very diplomatic at all, but (laughs) I stand by it. I, you know, I, um, so they, at the time, uh, they had an album, their first album was called screaming for change. And it's got a picture, a drawing, I think of like a bald guy with a microphone, like screaming into a crowd. And, you know, of course they're all 
whatever, everything short of of uh, Sieg Heiling because, well, let's talk about straight-edge audiences. Also but drawn any- by a guy from New Jersey who was my true? best friend's older brother named Dave Lawson. Oh, yeah. okay. Very so you're very familiar with this. I do, oh, I know UC for sure. They were on okay. some of my first entry to hardcore mixes because of that, yeah. That would make sense. So the what pre-internet, uh, the guitar player for Crucial Youth said, well, here's the thing. When they play the song Screaming for Change, uh, it, you know, in California, people throw pennies and nickels and dimes at them because they're screaming for change. <laughs> <laughs> and so if, if they come, you know, we had a show opening up for Uniform Choice at the Anthrax, another legendary oh, cool. club in, in Norwalk, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's like, you know, they're not going to be expecting it to happen here. So we should all bring coins. And when they play Scream for Change, we'll throw coins and they'll like really be caught off guard because now it's happening in Connecticut. Right. And uh, so I'm like, okay, great. And the the other three members of the band, like, you know, whatever. Everyone shows up on the day of the show. We're going to meet at one house and we're going to carpool up to Connecticut and uh, from New Jersey and I show up and, you know, this one's got like a, you know, a, a baggie, like a sandwich ba- size baggie with like, you know, whatever, $2.15 of pennies and, and dimes. And that one's got like a a, a coffee mug oh. that has, you know, a plastic cof- travel coffee mug and that's half so they, full of coins. They're strapped. Like, yeah. Well, I showed up with a foot tall planter's peanut jar <laughs> that probably held I'm I'm going to say by volume maybe it was definitely more than a half a gallon. What? <laughs> and it it's weighed 25 pounds. Yes. Yes. Brad, we've met. This shouldn't be surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so how did it go with uniform choice? So we show up and we're we're there, and so the guys, two of the, uh, well, uh, over time, three of the guys in Crucial Youth were brothers who were Indian American. Okay. Um, and the one who went to the West Coast, the guitar player was one of the brothers and uh, we get to the anthrax and for some reason in this would have been probably 88 Ian McKay is there. Ian McKay is there. Um, And uh, so he's there and he approaches the oldest brother uh, and it's like, hey, aren't you that guy? You know, whatever. And it's like, you know, of course he's he's uh, the. I, I will refer to him by his crucial youth name. Um, he is uh, Maynard Krebs in in Crucial Youth. <laughs> okay. Um, so he's like, you know, hey, aren't you that guy Maynard? And he's like, you know, very flattered. Oh yeah, how do you know? And well, well, you know, I know you went to this, you know, this school, and you know. We played there, and I recognize you because, you know, there aren't too many, like, Indians in in hardcore. 
uh-huh. plainly, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So he's over there talking, and uh, maybe it was a little... Mm, I mean, the word star fucker comes to mind. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I, I, and I, I would, you know, I don't know if he's going to hear this or not, but, but it was a little like, all right, you've got your new cool friend over there. Uh, and, and Maynard also had his girlfriend. He was in from the West Coast and his girlfriend who lived in Queens okay. had somehow come up to Connecticut, I'll assume on the train or something like that, and we were going to drive her back to her place in Queens. So he's over there, like, sort of fanboying with with Ian McKay. Uh, You know, his girlfriend is there, and the three of them are hanging out. But to be clear, like, he's, you know, maybe ignoring his girlfriend a little bit in favor of, you know, sure. the you know, the king of punk rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and you know, not that not that a uniform choice crucial youth show at the Anthrax was exactly the romantic date that maybe she, you know, <laughs> right. a, either of them had wanted. And sure. also to be fair, his girlfriend was very into music and punk rock and she probably was perfectly happy hanging out with Ian McKay too. Sure. I, I shouldn't make it sound like she was this, you know, beleaguered, you know, hostage in the situ- in, <laughs> right. in the, right. you know, the situation. But <laughs> so the the we're all there and we've got our our coins And the singer comes up to me and he's like, okay, so Maynard said, uh, we're not going to do it. We're not going to throw the coins. And I was like, well, that's bullshit. I mean, plainly that that's, he's just saying that because he's there over there with Ian McKay. And, uh, and it's like, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And I was like, well, okay. So I sort of go to the back of the room and I'm sort of, you know, standing back there, annoyed and sulking. <laughs> and the drummer and singer are up by the stage, and uh, the the baseline for "Screaming for Change" starts. Right. <laughs> and the drummer and singer, thirty feet, well, probably forty feet in front of me start tossing uh start tossing coins oh shit uh-huh and so then i'm like well if it's on yeah it's let, on let me hit the planters yeah but they they like sensible adults are you know sort of Gently tossing these coins <laughs> underhand right, right. from a close range, and you know they're they're catching the light and they're glistening, and everyone seeing the ha ah, ha ha! It's a fanciful, it's a fanciful <laughs> joke that they are making because it's a change. <laughs> I, the bitter, now twice betrayed right. race player yeah, in yeah. the back of the room. <laughs> start grabbing hands full of coins from the back. And because I'm so far away, I have to whip them overhand. It's fucking shrapnel. Yes. And it's just a shower. And it's just like, you know, like I get off like five or six handful. And uh, the end of the song, 
Now, listen, I was 19 years old. I'm not saying this was, you know, I wouldn't do it today, okay? Just to be clear, I wouldn't do it today, Benny. You're in no no danger up there on your, your drum riser, your, your eight-foot-tall rotating gaslight anthem yeah. drum riser. And you're like, oh, it'd be funny to light some gas. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, you're that I wouldn't do it today and and it, you know, it wasn't my finest moment. But sure. <laughs> What was the I've reaction went, of the the band were they so accustomed well, to it at this point or did they try to the, fight you? The guitar player just sort of like turned around and hunched over and right. like kept playing. Mm-hmm. Uh everyone else sort of, you know, half covered themselves at the end of the song. Pat Dubar the singer says, you know, you know, fun is fun. But nickels hurt, which, I mean... That's an all-time line. Yeah, if there was any regret that I had, that that definitely eased it. Um, And and for his part, over over with Ian McKay, the guitar player standing there, and he's sort of horrified. And Ian McKay turns to him, and he's like, isn't that your bass player? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. <laughs> and Ian McKay goes, that guy's a fucking idiot. <laughs> I, have, I have never like had a conversation with Ian McKay in my life. Yeah. But yeah. So I, and was, that's still where your relationship with him stands is the idiot bass player from Crucial Youth. Or as you, far as I know, yeah. Oh, and we, okay. uh, you know, as as you can you imagine, run into him again. <laughs> uh, I have actually run into him a couple of times, and it's just sort of I've run, but it's been a run into, not a yeah. Hi, right. I'm you know so and so. You may remember me from you know <laughs> nearly taking someone's eye out yeah. with a nickel in 1988. <laughs> uh, that is funny, man. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So so this is when we got from, from into your touring career and... Yes. You know, I see a list here. SNFU, Rancid, Seven Seconds, No Effects, Lemonheads, Super Chunk, Mighty Mighty Boston's, Monster no. Magnet. None of these? Uh not not <laughs> not not uh not Mighty Mighty Boston's. Oh, okay. I worked for Black Train Jack, who opened Ooh. for Mighty Mighty Boston's. Oh, Black Train Jack. Yes. And uh, so- do you have the goops on there or not? Uh, <laughs> I thought that was Brad's department. Uh, <laughs> February, 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 March, 1996. Yes. You know, we try yeah. us at the going off track audience. You know, Brad has this tendency of like underplaying, you know, the things that have had. He also has a shit memory, obviously, because it's like true. all these stories <laughs> have no detail to him. But we'll be at, we're, we're on this chat last Thursday, you know, and Brad is like, you know, we're talking about HR and the bad brains for like 20 minutes. And Brad's like, oh yeah, that reminds me of a time when I was like at Niagara at six in the morning and HR came in with a guitar and played song. And we're like, what? <laughs> like, like, and how do you not have like a real memory of this? And like any I do details? Have a real memory. I don't remember what he played. You know, yeah, I mean, memory. <laughs> I mean, hold you, on a second. You weren't even on cocaine that night. You said. No, but it Jesus. was like I said, six, six in the morning. morning. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and let's also, I mean, listen, I, I do, I do love bad brains as much as pretty much anybody else. Uh, but, HR with an acoustic guitar in Niagara at 6 a.m. <laughs> is probably not the same thing as Dylan going electric. <laughs> I mean, we'll never know. We'll it never know. But, oh, oh, we know. <laughs> we know. know. It was what you would have well, I mean, for the going off track listening audience... Jim, can you give us some insight into Brad in his heyday? I mean, like, who oh. was he in the band? Like, was he the obnoxious dude, the loud dude, the, the nice dude? Guy. Like, who was yeah, but, he? But, in the, like, what was his all, role in the whole thing, you know? I mean, but uh, first of all, Brad, calling you the obnoxious dude in, in that band, <laughs> like, there was... Uh, right. <laughs> I was obnoxious to my bandmates, though. Yeah, but like none of it was like it was like it was like being a the obnoxious dude in like a room full of Unitarian ministers. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just mean I just mean that they were all so nice. The meanest thing, the meanest thing that that anybody said on that tour uh that I recall anybody saying on that tour was Eleanor the singer turning to me at one point and saying something to the effect of any one of us, I was the tour manager, by the way, I was tour manager and like, you know, stage roadie. Okay. Um, And Eleanor turned to me and said, any one of us could do your job. We just want someone else to do it. (laughs) 
<laughs> which was completely accurate. Yeah, sort of fair. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't it wasn't like you know this terrible blow because it was a very. I was actually thinking about this, like trying to think of you know events from the Goops tour, and it. Brad, I'm I'm sorry to tell you, it was a a fairly uneventful tour. Right. It was uh, it was good. It was smooth. We played the shows. People showed up. They were happy and they left. And it was like, <laughs> right. It's it was kind of the thing that you know. It's kind of the tour that that every tour manager wants. And uh, then you know when you get it, you're like, well, but there's no there's no story about like you know whatever uh, you know a terrorist coming and turning up you know ending up backstage right, right. and we find out that he's a hijacker sure um which is a thing that i once experienced <laughs> yeah in the moment Whoa. these stories are are far less romantic than than the storytelling aspect of it yes. shows yeah yes. always yeah uh but no the the uh the uh no the goops was a uh was a was a good solid tour. It was like, okay, we're gonna go out, we're gonna play some shows, gonna rock some rock some kids. And uh and it happened. We that was our first major label tour. So we were doing a lot of serious stuff and trying to be very serious and yes. meeting <clears throat> record people. But the fun tour that we did with Jim was the Rancid tour that where we were there was no pressure on us because right. we were support. That's where I met you and um, yes that was a blast now, so as far as my shady memory what which tour did you jump up on stage in your tidy whities in was that, uh, that rancid that was rancid that was uh that was in um detroit at st andrews hall yeah and uh that was in well, Detroit at St Andrews Hall, and and just for the for the record, I tour managed Rancid for a brief but monumental time in their career. And if the book ever gets written on them, I will not be interviewed. But they're gonna. But who's ever writing it will miss out. Like I'm not. <laughs> I am not a member of their family, but I am this. I was there. Uh, the name of the album is "And Out Come the Wolves," yeah. and I like to say I was there when the wolves came out. Like I was there when the guy from Epic was showing up and trying to sign them. I was well, there. That, well, they were touring. Let's go, though. Yes, it was. Let's go. So they were writing "Out Come the Wolves" because I remember Lint and Lars writing those songs backstage during that tour. Yes. And why are you why are you going to be left out of the history intentionally by them or I don't know if it's intentional or not. I've run into Matt Freeman. I'm going to say, you know, and this is since 1994. Uh I've run into Matt Freeman probably four times, five times. And what's funny is every single time he said it in he said it in like 1995 or so, maybe six. They came, I was living in Seattle and they pl came and played and I was like, hey, what's going on, man? Uh, he said it then and he said it as recently as last summer when his other band was in uh, Asbury Park. He sort of, you know, uh, in his very Matt Freeman way, he's like, yeah, I always forget that like, you were there when it was really hard. 
And like, there was like a lot of stuff going on. And like, I kind of feel like maybe you don't get credit for like (laughs) what you had to go through. And it's like, what you're telling me is that, and, and which is totally fine. But what you're telling me is that there's basically like, um, a dismissiveness or shit talk about me behind my back. If I'm mentioned at all, Uh. um, which is fine. I don't care because you know, it's, I was hired to do a tour and I did a tour and then they changed management and they took on other people. And it's like, that's the way it goes. I was, I did not sign a lifetime contract with them. I mean, was it like adversarial when you were on tour? It was just like, no, 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 no. Um, I, the end of that tour, uh, everybody, um, you know, there were like the hugs and all that. And I, I said something, uh, to the, uh, original drummer, Brett Reed. I was like, Oh, you know, it's been good, whatever. And he said something like, we'll see you next time. And I was like, yeah, there's not going to be a next time. <laughs> oh, right. Or like, you know, you know, that's not, you know, and he like looked at me and I was like, no, it's cool. Right, we're cool. Right. Like, like, but just I like, I know do- what's happening here. Yeah. yeah and, and it sure. was like, he, I, I felt like, um, what, what's funny is I felt like, uh, that whole tour that the other three guys in the band, you know, I was like on the same page with, and he disliked me. And okay. that was like, my constant thing was like, Brett's, you know, like kind of like up my ass about this or up my ass about that. And it was like, I remember one of the things was, he said he was, uh, he was like, you know, our, our, our old tour manager would like, you know, fight for us with promoters. And I was like, every show is sold out. We're getting everything we want and we're getting every penny we deserve. What's to fight for? Yeah. Like it's, I got, you know, like these are all people that I know. I've been through these places 20 times before I walk in and I say, you know, can we have an extra whatever, you know, can we, can we have more tortilla chips? Yes. You can have more tortilla chips. (laughs) Um, so it's like, you know, there's nothing to fight for. And I, I sort of, when I was there on the tour, I felt like, oh, he hates me. And he didn't like the way I drove because we had one of those, uh, we had one of those 1990 conversion vans, 1990s rented conversion vans with like a high roof uh-huh. that like was a sailboat. So yeah, if you're right. driving and like the wind hits it, you're like, oh, yeah. so, you know, I think he felt, he thought I drove like shit, um, which, you know, understandable but um they uh uh so anyway we finished the tour and i'm like okay you know whatever hugs with all the other guys and years later i'm at the the club where i work now and a band comes in and something came up i forget how it came up that someone something came up about me working for rancid oh i know the the guy who booked the club told the agent who was there with the band that I had worked with rancid cause I'm old. So it's like, where did this guy come from? Yeah. Right. Why do you have a, why do you have a 50 year old man, uh, you know, working in this rock club? Yeah. Yeah. What's his story? Um, and so, yeah, the, the former booker was like, you know, well, he worked for rancid and did this or whatever. And it turns out that the band that was playing, I think it was the story so far, uh, one of them or their crew knew Brett Reed, the drummer, and texted him like, hey, do you remember Jim Norton? And he wrote back and he goes, yeah, Jim Norton, great guy. Uh, I thought he was, 
I thought he was really good. The rest of the band hated him. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, that's fantastic. There you I go. love that. That is, I was like, that is the best. <laughs> like, I didn't even know that story wasn't over yet, but now. Um, well, you so know what? I wouldn't trust yeah. a rancid biography without you in it now. Was it a fucking fluff piece? You know, I want the truth. Uh, yeah. No, I'm sure that I've, I've heard some stories about things that happened after my time. There's enough. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. receipts. There's receipts. There. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if other people will give them, but yeah, there are receipts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yes. Uh, but back to back to the uh, me on stage. And by the way, they weren't tidy whities. Uh, <laughs> Come they, on. They were. No, no. Hold on. <laughs> Hold oh, on. they were bikini briefs. Yes. Oh, that's oh. right. How can I forget that? <laughs> they were. I, they were probably leopard spotted bikini briefs. Oh, nice. Yes. Yes. Okay. Very yeah. Nice. How could I possibly misrepresent that memory? Okay. Yeah. And um, did you surprise? Guy did you surprise the band in this outfit? Uh, well, what happened was we were in Detroit at St. Andrews Hall. Um, Love St. Andrews. A, a visit from the head of Columbia Records, a a a legendary uh, record oh, company guy, right. Donnie Einer. Okay, who's like he's like the cigar chomping, yes, like Mister Big, right, right, guy. right. Um, <laughs> everybody is either, there's in the in the rancid camp. There's all this like back and forth, um, because these major labels keep showing up. Yeah. And uh, so Epitaph is freaking out because they're like, oh, you're oh, going right. to leave us now. You're going to, sure. you know, you're going to leave us. And then uh, there's the agent who doesn't want them to sign to a major label. She wants them to stay with Epitaph. And then there's the manager uh, who's like, I want them to sign with a major label because there's going to be a huge advance and yeah. I'm going to get X gonna percentage get, of it. Yeah, 10 to 15% I mean, that's percent a, of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, all these people keep showing up and it was like Columbia showed up twice. There were two different people from Columbia who showed up. That was kind of weird. Like there was a, a young A&R guy who showed up from Columbia and at one point, like he turned up like a second or third time. And I was like, yeah, you know, Donnie Einer came to like Detroit and he's just like, Oh really? Well, <laughs> I'm wasting my time here. Like <laughs> the big boss is going to scoop me on this. Yeah. Right. Uh, Epic Columbia Maverick with Madonna, uh, Atlantic capital, I think, uh, showed up. It was just like all these people like turning up at, at shows. Um, and was this part of like the the that you know early '90s Green Day and Offspring are getting yes. huge now? Yes. Everybody has to sign yeah. a punk band thing. Yeah, it was November November '94 '94. So right, November. You guys yeah. are both right in the thick of that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and they were uh, they did headlining shows with the Goops, and then the second half was rancid supporting offspring. Right. Who, oh yeah. We were doing like one last club tour for the punks. Okay. Uh, but like they were already, they had already sold like 4 million records. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're in Detroit. We're at St. Andrews. Donnie Einer is there in the dressing room with whoever, you know, his assistant or, or multiple assistants. I don't even remember. I just remember it being like 
this crazy situation. And uh, Lars from Rancid and Eleanor from the Goops decided that they were going to do the song Barbed Wire Love by right. Stiff Little Fingers right. as a duet. Okay. And uh, Brad? Right, that was the first time we did it. Yeah. <laughs> It was fucking terrible. <laughs> it was horrifying and terrible. So is the goops playing the music and Lars would come on stage? L- Lars and and yeah, I'm I I will I was there, man. It was as the as the children would say today, it was cringe. Brad, oh, was, no. was your memory of it as bad? I don't remember. We ended up we ended up recording it. It came out. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think you guys must have thought it was good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember whether it was good. But I do remember that, like, so at the I end- thought that you were jumping up to kind of, like, eat. Cause Lars was nervous about doing it, and you were trying to make him more comfortable. Oh, no, so no, 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 no. this is, like, no. a change on my personal story. No, my take <laughs> on it, my take on it was, like, this is sucking. I got to do something. <laughs> this is sucking, and I got to, like, you know, also, also my thought at the time was, like, you know, uh, kind of like my guy looks like, yeah, kind of looks shitty up there. So right. I got to go up there and like gonna take the seriousness out of this. You're running situation. interference. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I pressed the big red button and fucking blew it up. <laughs> Trying to protect and, them from uh, the uh, incoming change. Yes. <laughs> and so, so I was wearing oh, these God. leopard spotted bikini underwear and a little bit more on that in a minute in terms of stories and, and a little <laughs> bit of uh, petty axe grinding. Um, but yeah, so I, I stripped down to the bikini underwear and go at the end of the song and it's like the way the song ends is like a barbed wire love. Like it's just, it's like straight out. I love Stiff Little Fingers, but that song... It's like straight out of the Grease soundtrack. It's like, <laughs> it is not like, I whatever. It's just, it's not my favorite Stiff Little Finger sure, song. Sure, right. Um, uh. And, uh, and, and like, really, I love Stiff Little Fingers. But, but yeah, that song is, I, uh, <laughs> something about blasted by your booby traps. Come on. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Um, so when you're so, like, oh, even punks lived in the eighties, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at the end when they're doing the, like the big finish, I just go out there like fat guy in bikini underwear <laughs> and scoop Eleanor up and carry her off stage. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh my God. So it's yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. a rescue mission. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's very noble, uh, Jim. Uh, it's very noble. Well, I, I wouldn't mm. go so far as noble, but uh, <laughs> but I did it, and that may have actually been the thing that cost me my job in the future. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah. Yes, yes. Because I got off stage, and like, uh, Tim, like, basically was just like, "What?" Was just like, "Whatever, dude." And Matt. Freeman just came up and was like, don't ever do that again. Mm. Whoa. And I was like, okay. You know, it was like, I Holy can't, smokes. I can't undo it. Yeah. Um, I was like, okay. But it was like, no argument, no nothing. No, like, yeah, just whatever. Cool. Uh, yeah. That's done. And it was like, 
with all the stuff that was swirling around, yeah. it was like, yeah, yeah. Right. If this if this is the thing, then this is the thing. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, um, in the moment, like I, you know, I don't know. I could see, you know, myself almost being like, you know, this is the wrong time to like to fuck with my money. You know what I mean? The fuck with us. Oh yeah, like, no, no, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. No, I don't say that they were. No, they had every right. I was their employee, and I, you know. Yeah, no, this, I totally get that. I would have, uh, if you could take ego out of it and just look at it from like a showbiz perspective, I would counter and say uh, he should never been a, have been on stage with the support band doing a corny duet <laughs> you know that that would have been my thing and it was like it was not inspired the move was not inspired by like uh you know i need more attention for me right right which right. a lot of times with me it was i'm not saying that you know i'm not saying that's an alien concept <laughs> right but on that particular tour i was more about just like let's get this job done and you know yeah uh, you thought you were doing the right thing yes but it's okay it, it was totally fine yeah. and, you know, whatever. Well, from our point of view, that's what got you our tour, I think. <laughs> right, was, right. That was there right up Goop's yeah. alley, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Everything trickles down. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Our, and, and uh, yeah. But we definitely bonded on that tour because you had the East Coast mentality and those guys were definitely, like you said, they had a lot going on and were wound a bit tight on that tour. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't look back at any point and look back and be like, you know, there is no bitterness about not working for them. There's no misunderstanding. There's no, like, you know, I said, you know, I, I don't think that I am, uh, somebody who they look back on wistfully, <laughs> you know, I think it's just sort of like, oh, there was that guy. Okay. Right. Yeah. And then I after mean, that was the yeah. next guy. I, I would um, like to say I have like none of that in my past, but honestly, there's like, there's some tours where so much shit is going on on another side of things that has nothing to do with any of it that some people just fall victim to being like with a band at the wrong time. Yes. You know, like yeah, that no, that's what it was. 100%. Because, like, yeah, my happen. perception, and really for real, the reason that we wanted to go out with Jim was because. That you handled the shit show so well, like the business side of it, which is what we were fucking saddled with, right? You know, and 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 the the business of the stage and all the bullshit that comes with it, from fucking carrying gear to like the dirty work, right? And we're all, and also had a great sense of humor about it, and we're very and you were like, and you're also a good. I hate to use this word because we were all probably older than you, but you were like a good daddy and that's what a road manager has to be on wow. a tour because your daddy in we, leopard bikini shorts i mean maybe it's daddy's not up the now. word but like the responsible <laughs> adult i yes. guess is yep. what it is yeah yeah no exactly no that that was that's the reason why i grabbed onto that position so early in my touring career was just kind of like yeah no i am that guy there was once there was a uh a guy i was touring with once who was kind of like a bit of a a bit of a, um, for lack of a better term, a hippie. Um, and 
he said something to me. He really didn't care, didn't like me, and I didn't really like him. Uh, he was a sound guy, and he said something once about, like, I have a cop mentality. Oh. <laughs> and he thought that it was, like, this, this, like, provocative statement, and I was just like, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, I do. I do have, you know, like, I do have a cop mentality. That's why I was a bouncer from right. when I was 17, and right. then I was, a, you know, a tour manager, and then I was, you know, now it's like, you know, Benny, it's like, you know, I'm I'm the guy who gets band, you know, gets bands on and off sound check on yeah. time. Yeah. And you know, like that's that is what I am. And there are downsides to that personality. Someone's but, gotta do it though. But it but it is a useful a useful position to sure have is. filled. Yeah. Um so yeah, that that part of it. Now I want to go into the bikini underwear. Okay. I want to dig in. <laughs> dig in, baby. Dig in. And this is the thing I'm going in full, like, I could just leave this and it would be fine. But instead, it's I'm going to go in with the, like, the most petty, like, look at me. This is about me. Um, It's your podcast, Jim. You, exactly, you go for it. Exactly. But I just want everyone everyone hearing this to know, like, oh, I, I know how this is going to sound. Uh, I'm doing this on purpose. Uh, so the first tour that I ever did seven or first tour I ever worked for somebody else, seven seconds, uh, on the soul force revolution tour that the, the back end of it, uh, fall of 1989, fall, winter, 1989, um, on the, just before Thanksgiving, uh, we played, some Canadian dates and the last show was in Montreal. We were leaving Montreal, uh, on Thanksgiving, 1989. And I had like $20 Canadian in my pocket. And we, you know, I had already eaten breakfast and whatever, all this stuff. And I knew like when we get to the other side of the border, it's going to be Thanksgiving. The, uh, change play, you know, currency exchange places might be closed. Right. So I just have this like useless $20 bill and we were, we had played Fafoon's electric in, in uh, Montreal yep, yep. and the van is parked somewhere on St. Catherine street, which is where the club is lo was located. Also is like sort of the strip club district right. of, at the time of Montreal and right Next to the van, there's a a store, a men's clothing store, and they have these just underwear mannequins. It's you know from the <laughs> from the the thigh to the to the middle of the stomach, and they've got these underwear mannequins, and they have these ridiculous bikini underwear with like leopard spot and zebra striped and leopard spotted but maroon, mm. uh, and they say. You know, whatever it's at, whatever they're called in French, and it says five dollars. Oh, les fantastiques. We, we, mais we. So I go in there because, of course, four in, pair. Yes, because in Canada, in Canada, of course, you know they have their Thanksgiving another day. This is just thir some Thursday in November to them. Right. So I go in and I buy. Uh, there was a pair that was snakeskin, a pair of uh. uh, leopard spotted, leopard spotted with red, and 
zebra stripe. Wow, what a deal. Totally. (laughs) And I I debuted them on stage (laughs) at City Gardens in early December 1989. Uh, just like went out on stage wearing it and it's, you know, whatever. It's like the club that I worked at and everybody knew me and it's a seven second show and it's pretty full and all, you know, all the everybody <laughs> are there. Um, and I go out on stage and, you know, of course they're, they're like, uh, you know, there are photos taken and it's a whole thing. <laughs> and every once in a while I'd like pop out. But it wasn't like an every day. It was a it was a once in a while. Yeah, special right. occasion. Special occasions, exactly. <laughs> uh, so that was seven seconds. Um, then in 1992, uh, I was asked to be the first roadie taken out, like stage roadie taken out by the Rollins Band. Okay. Uh, they felt that they were finally far enough in their career a year after Lollapalooza that they could have somebody else carry their stuff. Uh, Unfortunately, I couldn't do that tour. I handed it off to my friend, Kenny. Uh, Kenny did that tour. I was uh, in Europe with Monster Magnet and couldn't, like, it was, you know, they were my monster magnum were my friends. I couldn't cancel on them. So I couldn't do the Rollins band tour, but I got pulled in for the summer tour and be in that interim. I went up to Canada to visit friends and I dropped whatever it was, a hundred bucks or something, went back to the same place, got more bikini underwear, (laughs) but now I was buying them in in like sets of two. (laughs) Wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Brad. Brad. Yes. Do you know my friend? Do you know Kenny Butler? Did he have a Goops connection? Kenny Butler. I don't know. That sounds familiar. He was uh he was a, a drum tech for Rollins Band and later Green Day. He worked for Filter. He worked for he was friends with Oh, pro- was he friends with our manager? Um, filter and uh, maybe, Rollins maybe, but also I want to say that for some reason I thought maybe you guys had been on a tour together. He worked for, did you guys ever tour with Sam? I am. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, I think he was on tour with Sam. I am. He was like a, he was like the West coast Jim Norton. He was like a, 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 a stocky oh. guy. Yeah. 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 Stocky guy, smart ass. Like, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. he and I got introduced in. 1990, I think, or not. Yeah, I think it was 1990. We were introduced uh, by a band who was supporting Seven Seconds. And it was like, oh, you got to meet our friend Kenny. You guys had hit it off. And it was literally just like, you know, I ended up in his place. And it was like, oh, yeah, no, we're we're just brothers now. Like, that's the way it is. We're just brothers. It was stepbrothers. It was yeah, literally, right. it was like stepbrothers. We just become uh, best friends. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, I get him the Rollins gig. He in turn pulls me in for the next tour. And uh, he pulled me in. I was hired as a truck driver by by uh, your former manager. Um, and the Richard. Uh, no, uh, Gail. Oh, right. Was it? Wasn't it? Was Gail not we involved had, with you? No, we had Richard. Oh, okay. Um, that's I can't really remember weird. his last name now. That's funny. Yeah. 
Uh, has this tie back into has this tie back into bikini underwear underwear bikini underwear so I buy a whole bunch of bikini underwear because I decide that I'm going to turn up on the Rollins Band tour and Kenny and I are going to wear matching bikini underwear because we both Benny Kenny and I both go to the same gym and follow (laughs) the same workout regimen uh huh if you get what I'm saying I do I do okay (laughs) uh so we I buy this bikini underwear and I'm like, you know, keep teasing this. Like I got a surprise for you in Houston at the first show, whatever. And he's like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And uh, so I get there and I, at, he gets in and it's like the day before the first show. And I put on the bikini underwear in my room, my hotel room. And I walk down the hall with a shopping bag full of bikini underwear for him. Uh, and I knock on the door <laughs> And stick my thumb over the over the eye hole. And I hear him like, okay, dude, I know it's you. And he opens up the door and it's me standing in the hallway in this bikini underwear. And his face just drops. And he's like, dude, get in here. <laughs> and I go in and he's like, what are you thinking? And he's like, dead serious. And this is the guy who's like, you know, like we joke around, yeah. we like have fun. This whatever. is your John C. Riley, like yeah. yeah. And he's like, "Yo, like not cool, not oh. cool, not this is not that kind of a of a gig. No way, not cool. <laughs> like we're not." And I was just like, "Oh, well, that's a bummer." Yeah, and I just spent all this money. <laughs> well, just also just like you know, my friend told me we're not going to go play. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, oh, and uh. He's like, yeah, not not cool, dude. Uh, oh. And so I was like, okay. And I like put it back in my bag and kind of don't think of it. But in the meantime, I had also told a couple of the guys in the in the band, not Henry, but like probably Andrew and Chris and Sim, like that there was some surprise that Kenny and I had for them. Oh. And that like a couple of weeks in we're like, they're like, so what's up? Like, what's that surprise? You said there's a surprise. And I was like, yeah, it's not going to happen. It was a bad idea. And they're like, well, what was it? And I was like, eh, probably best. I don't say. And this was at, uh, this was in Lawrence, Kansas. They were playing the Liberty hall. Okay. And, uh, they're like, well, what, what was it? What was it? And I was like, it doesn't, it's not, it's not a good idea. Like it really, like it bummed, Kenny out. It's not. And they're like, well, you have to tell us what it was. And I was like, I'll tell you what, I'll show you what it was. <laughs> and I was like, do me a favor. Give me 10 minutes. Meet me out at the equipment truck and I'll show you what it was. <laughs> and so I go and I change in, I strip down and I'm standing. Do you like remember which hunt. pair you had for this showing? I don't remember. <laughs> okay. It, uh, these were these were different. These were there were uh by the time this happened they had like changed the designs. There was a lot of like black with like gold lame stars okay. and stuff like that. <laughs> very nice. Still very good. Nice. Still yeah. good. Yeah. Different but still very good. Sure. Yeah. Um and uh <laughs> so I like hid behind the equipment truck and I could hear them coming and they're like, you know, I, I could hear someone like, you know, he said, said, meet us over here. Like, he's probably going to come over. And I was like, okay, you there? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I pop out from behind the truck. I'm like, hello. <laughs> and they're all just like, what 
the f-? Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? And I was like, yeah, like Kenny was like, I thought it would be a funny idea. Like, you know, Kenny was like, you know, it wasn't cool. And they were like, not cool. It's the coolest. Oh, Kenny. And I was like, Ow. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't know. Like, Henry might bum out. And they're like, Henry is going to love this more than anyone. Yeah, he oh loves God. nudity. And uh, <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God. They're like, you. so wait, you're telling me that you could have been working this oh, whole time wearing this? Missed and, uh, opportunity. And uh, I've never like, seen yeah. a picture of Henry Rollins with a shirt on. Right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> they immediately are just like, we got to go tell Kenny what's up. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, all right, whatever. And he comes up and he's like, dude, like they just fucking cornered me and like gave me all kinds of shit. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's a great idea. Like I get why you were like worried, but it's a sure, great idea. Sure. And Kenny and I, uh, on that tour, well, first of all, like I said, I was hired to be the truck driver. And it was a tour that had like minimum 300 miles between almost every show. Oh, wow. wow and some Jesus. were like, you know, 400, 500, whatever. So I am hired and my job is I get to the show at the, I get to the venue at the end of the show. I open up the door right. to the truck and I guide people, the house crew, how to pack the gear. Then I close the door, drive to the next city overnight, open, open up the, the door. door. <laughs> the next crew unloads everything. And I then park the truck somewhere and go to a hotel and right. go to bed. Yep. That is Jeez. what I was hired to do. Wow. However... It was Henry Rollins and the Rollins Band in 1992, and maybe I had read a few Henry Rollins books, <laughs> and maybe the part animal, part machine thing kind of went a little too far into my head. Mm. And so, what I would do is, uh, I would op- I would like open the door, and the house crew would load the gear out and then I would close the door and I would go inside and I would set up all the back line. Oh, wow. And then I would like hang out for a while. And I, Oh, I would also set up the lights because the Rollins band wanted all white light cover every bit of the stage, no dark spots. Uh, and that oftentimes required refocusing things. And then the opening bands who at the time were tool on one part and uh, corrosion of conformity on the second half, they actually wanted lights with color. So you had to fit, like, this is before color changing lights. Right, right. um, Had to keep enough lights so that they could have some color uh, so we weren't, like, screwing them over. And uh, so I'd set up the lights, and that would take an hour, hour and a half. Um, Then I would hang out, and then it was time for the show, and I would... Uh, work stage security for the Rollins band for the show in bikini underwear. Um, (laughs) And then, uh, so if people like got on stage and got right off stage, that was fine. But if they got there and hung out, uh, we'd like, you know, take them off to the, you know, either bikini crew came and got them. Bikini crew comes and gets you and you don't know what's going to happen when bikini (laughs) crew gets you. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm not hearing uh, sleep 
in yeah. this. In this yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, that's it's tough. weird how that sort of catches up with you. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So I didn't sleep uh, or I would sleep like two or three hours in the cab of a rider truck oh, on the road between, you know, here and there. And what it meant was, and this was a nine week tour with oh. literally two actual days off. God. Holy shit. Everything else was either a show or a, like a 10 hour drive. Wow. God damn. Or both. Um, it was a, it was a hard tour. And so what started, you know, what, what quickly happens, I, you know, is that you start slipping and now it's like, well, you, you slept too long in the truck. Right. So you showed up like 45 minutes late for load in and now everyone's pissed off. Right. And since Mm -hmm. they're pissed off, you're pissed off and defensive. And now you've got a shitty attitude. And, uh, you know, I basically like tried so hard to make myself indispensable that I made myself unemployable. Wow. Right. And I unfortunately had to learn that lesson on that tour with Rollins band, as opposed to learning it on some other tour that maybe wasn't, you know, didn't have as much promise. Sure. Um, so that was a bit of a bummer, but that was the next thing for the bikini underwear. Um, and then what year was it that I was like 94, I think, when the Civ video came out? Yeah, it's about right. Sure. Yeah. And, and the bikini underwear after 93, like it shows up here and there. Uh, <laughs> and then the Civ video, wait, can't wait one minute more comes out. And uh, in the middle, there's a drum break. Yeah. And a guy comes down the stairs dancing in what appear to be bikini, like leopard spotted bikini underwear. Uh And listen, (laughs) I'm just pointing out that every time H2O plays, they shout out seven seconds, the band that they love. And without seven (laughs) seconds, there would be no H2O. Right. And maybe pointing out that the guy in the bikini underwear looks a little bit like uh, the singer from H2O. (laughs) (laughs) and uh later uh there was a store a rehearsal and storage place in new york uh big uh cms big mics right that's where we used to rehearse i can't believe i pulled that out cms yeah big mics yeah uh and i worked for a band there uh i worked for a band that that stored their stuff there uh soul coughing and also a band that rehearsed there was H2O. And I ran into uh, Toby, who I wasn't like, you know, I, I knew who he was. I don't even know if he knew who I was. We weren't, we weren't enemies. We weren't friends. Um, but in like 1996 or seven, I was like, Hey, what's going on, Toby? I like the underwear. <laughs> I was like <laughs> the bikini underwear. Yeah. I know, I know where that came from. And he like just <laughs> stared at me. And it's like, in my mind, in my mind at the time, it was like, yeah, he knows. Yeah. Now it's just like, you were some freaking weirdo who just said something about underwear from three years ago to him. He doesn't know or care. Right. He doesn't know who you are. He doesn't, uh, whatever, whatever. Uh, so then that, and I was a little like, hey, man, 
Forget the guy, like, forget the good-looking guy with the body who can actually right. dance. This was like, my thing. This was my thing. Yeah. I was bikini underwear. I was bikini man. <laughs> A year later, um, well, actually, starting in, like, 94, while I am out with, uh, with Rancid, uh, my friend Kenny is doing drums. He's uh, Trey Cool's drum tech okay. from Green Day. And was Trey Cool's drum tech for like 20 years. Oh, cool. And uh, starting in about 1995, uh, there's a set, uh, a part in the Green Day concert show where every night our man Billy Joe Armstrong comes out on stage in leopard spotted bikini <laughs> underwear. Wow, come on. <laughs> Wow. Jim, the pioneers never get the credit. You know that. Oh. <laughs> you know, I think you just found the the after the semicolon for your autobiography, you know? Yes. <laughs> the original bikini man. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right. Oh. That's okay. part one of the gentleman part Jim Norton <laughs> going way off track. Yeah, way. <laughs> you know what killed me in this? I love that story about his parents at church. Dude, I've already repeated it to my wife. <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jesus, Marion, Joseph. <laughs> that cracked me up. I love when you, you get that little insight where you're like, oh, yeah. see, this is why people become punk rockers, you know? Like, <laughs> It really stems from independent thought, and and that independent thought can stem from anywhere, right? You yeah, know? I mean, yeah, I thought you didn't think that story was going that direction. Can, no, the way he no, set I, it up with like, no, I thought it was going to be him making some like right. overture in church, like I can't do this anymore. But I love that he was being the good son, and he's like, oh well, my parents oh. left, so <laughs> guess I got to go too. That's my ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That fucking killed me. I loved it. But, man, great stories to listen to. And, uh, yeah, I mean, prepare yourselves for part two because the stories get even even more fun. You got <laughs> Fred Schneider. Yeah. You got Boston story. Oh, yeah. Which is insane. Uh, so, yeah. No, I mean, I can't can't wait to get into the next part. And, uh well, what's – we can't – I did give Jim a New Jersey State trivia game. Because he's a trivia host, that'll be and apparently two, the think. third, the third most uh, successful or best trivia host in North America. Is that what he said to me? Yeah, I believe it. So, I mean, listen, 
I mean, what a wild thro- ride. He was throwing around some terms that I didn't even know existed when it came to uh, yeah. trivia. <laughs> From City trivia. Gardens to the third best trivia host in North America. <laughs> it's a nice ride. I heard he worked with Jon Stewart for six weeks at City Gardens right. right before he left for New York to be a comedian. So that's the other. And I don't know. I mean, I talk about City Gardens like it's secondhand because it was like just part of the narrative growing up. Everyone just older than me basically lived there. And everyone just younger than me just talked about how much they wish they could have gone to shows there. You know, it's uh, the beginning of the Fugazi documentary. I think City Gardens has its own documentary now. Like, um, yeah, like pretty, really pretty legendary place. And like, you know, in not at a time when they're outside of New York, there was really anything useful going on. You know, like you said, it was a strange time for Philly. You know, as far as that size club went, there wasn't, you know, Jersey's always had that problem where, you know, there's a lot of people in New Jersey interested in doing shows and interested in playing music, but never really a city, never really like a home base where it's just like, oh, this is the place where you go play. And that's how, you know, places like City Gardens and all the spots in Newark and, uh, you know, the basement scene and the down under in New Brunswick, like all this stuff was was popping up and mostly in, you know, it was just that, you know, like we talked about in, in the interview, it's uh, at the time they were sort of like grimy and terrifying places in a lot of ways. Right. And, you know, you, you set back 10 years and all of a sudden it becomes romantic. <laughs> but, uh, but man, I mean, in the years he worked at City Gardens and, uh, you know, I can't, I'm sure he downplayed the amount of shit he seen. The golden <laughs> years of City It was. I mean, seriously, go look at some of those lineups. Like, you know, it was less the lineups, but City Gardens would have these flyers, you know, with, with all the upcoming dates on it. And just you add, add together some of the bands that are on some of those pages. You're like, wow, can't believe all those bands played within like one month of each other in Trenton, New Jersey, you know? Yeah. So Trenton makes, the world takes. <laughs> That's what it says on the bridge, Brad. Well, if you want to get your own experience with Jim's trivia, um, look him up. He's Gentleman Jim Norton on Instagram. He's O-Done20 on Facebook. That's O-D-O-N-E-2-0. Um, and catch up to us at Going Off Track, wherever you get your social media. If you want to support us, you know, you can become a patron. Patreon.com slash Going Off Track. We've got our uh, Thursday night fireside chat that we do with That's patrons right. on Discord. Right. We do um, special Master content. Special content when we've got it. Benny and ad I free usually stuff. do usually do a video every so often. To do, uh, we, do they get ad free episodes? Ad free episodes. They do. Yes, ad free. Now that we got those funny little Acast ads, it's it's a good sell. You know, ad free episodes. Don't forget yeah. and. Uh, yeah, since and Brad and we I have it. bowed down to the man, you know, <laughs> had to do it, bro. I don't um, know how much longer we're going to be bowing down to Acast. I'm not really that psyched with their. Oh, hey, oh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> Enough on that. Master. Anyway, let's uh, let's get our let's get off this fucking podcast. Yeah, but, well, you but, got um, plenty more gym in the next one. So yeah, so. All right. Well, look forward to part two next week. And uh, you know what? Brad, 
I love you. I hope you have a great week. Okay. Love you too, Benny. Same right back at you. 